Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship Just as God has provided a grace basis for our salvation, that by faith alone in Christ alone we can have eternal life, He also provides a grace basis so that we can recover from sin. Whenever we sin, we lose fellowship. It breaches that ongoing spiritual life, spiritual production, spiritual growth ministry of the Holy Spirit, which the Bible refers to as quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. Whenever we sin, this is broken, but... We recover simply by admitting our sins to God. Scripture says if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have your word to inform us as to not only our past, but also our purpose, our future destiny, and above all things, how to orient to your plans and purposes for our own lives. Father, study of your word is one of the most significant things that we can dedicate our lives to. Is It is through your word that you produce spiritual growth in our lives. It is through your word that we orient to reality, and it is through your word that we are strengthened and encouraged in our day-to-day life. Now, fathers, we continue our study on the angelic conflict and its relationship to uh, the future, to eschatology as revealed in Revelation. We pray that you'd help us to put together the things that we've been taught, that we might gain a greater understanding, but that might also uh, motivate us and encourage us in our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible is very clear in its revelation that there is a future judgment for sin and evil, a future resolution of what we talked about last time in terms of the problem of evil as it is often expressed. I used that phrase last week. Somebody said, well, what about sin? Well, sin is part of that 
uh, discussion, when we talk about the problem of evil, that is really a phrase that is a standard use in, in discussion about the whole problem of, of sin, uh, unjust suffering, and how God is ultimately going to bring resolution uh, to these particular problems. But the Bible not only informs us as to what will happen in regard to the future destiny of sin and evil, but it tells us about the origin of sin and evil. This is a question that has been addressed, as I pointed out recently, by a number of evangelical scholars who at one time held firmly to the view that Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, described the uh, original sin in the universe, the fall of the angel known as Lucifer. But now that has come into question. So I want to spend some time addressing that because this, both of the contexts of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 relate to what goes on in Revelation, specifically between Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 19. Now, as I've stated in the previous lessons, it's important for us to step back from our verse-by-verse study of Revelation to understand the role and function of angels as a whole, because that's going to help us understand what is happening with these angels, both in terms of the uh, holy angels and the fallen angels in Revelation. Let me just give you a very brief overview of the way in which angels are used in the outworking prophecy in Revelation. As I pointed out previously, approximately one-third of the references to angels in the New Testament occurs in Revelation between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19, the passages that deal with prophecy. First of all, we see the angels surrounding the throne of God in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. There was a return to the heavenly scene in chapter 7, and again we see the angels singing praise and glorifying God in relation to the judgments that are being poured out on the earth in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, we also see that the uh, meteorology of the earth at the time of the tribulation is under the control of angels. There are four angels who are said to control the winds, and they are preparing to execute judgment through various weather disasters on, on, upon the earth in chapter 7, verse 1. But then we see another angel come on the scene in verse 2, who restrains them until the 144,000 Jews can be sealed and protected from the judgments of God during the tribulation period. We also see that angels are involved in announcing and then carrying out the three series of judgments that form the, the focal point of the tribulation judgments. First, there are the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, then finally the bowl judgments. And each of these is initiated by an angel. We also see a focus on demons and, and their role in the judgments of, of the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, we see that there is a demonic army 
that is released from the bottomless pit to torment the unsaved upon the earth. If you wish, just turn with me briefly. I want to highlight a couple of verses as we go through this, just to make sure you understand this overview. Revelation uh, chapter 9. This question's come up a couple of times recently. This comes uh, as an interlude after the uh, fourth trumpet judgment. This comes in, well, actually comes in the fifth trumpet judgment, and then there's an, uh, going to be an announcement that comes up. But in the fifth trumpet judgment, you have the release of this locust army. They're pictured as locusts with a sting like scorpions, and they are demons that are released from the abyss or the bottomless pit. And they come out of the ground, and they are given the power to torment men, but not to kill them. And they are described in verses 1 through 12, and this is described as a woe. The fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments are described as these three woes because they step up the intensity of the judgments upon the earth uh, to a high degree. The sixth trumpet judgment, which is the second woe, is then described in Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. Now, there are, I was asked a question about this uh, not too long ago, and there's a misunderstanding on this. There's a couple of popular uh, prophecy writers who've identified these uh, 200 million horsemen mentioned in verse 16 as uh, the uh, Chinese or some oriental army invading. However, if you pay attention, pay close attention to the text, look at verse 14, the sixth angel who has the trumpet says, release the four angels, and these four angels are demons. They are not uh, holy angels. They are being released because they are part of this group that's imprisoned near the Euphrates. Now, the Euphrates runs through modern uh, Iraq. And there is a very famous city that was located on the Euphrates, and that is Babylon. Now, that's important because the judgment that comes, that we'll talk about in just a minute, in Revelation 17 and 18 is a judgment on a future Babylon. And there is also a judgment on Babylon that is described in detail in Isaiah chapter 13, and the passage that we're looking at that describes the fall of Lucifer in Isaiah 14 is part of that oracle of judgment that is announced by Isaiah, starting with Isaiah 13.1. So you can't understand the key verses of Isaiah 14.12-14 related to the five I wills of Satan unless you do what? Those of you who've been coming to Ike's Bible study methods, you have to understand context. So Isaiah 14, 12 to 14 is in the context of Isaiah 13 to 14. Isaiah 13 through 14 is in the context of a series of judgments against the nations that goes from Isaiah 12 to Isaiah 39. That's within the context of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah gives a tremendous amount of detail to yet unfulfilled prophecies that must be understood as a backdrop to all later revelation related to prophecies. Ezekiel is later, Daniel is later, and of course 
the book of Revelation is later. So if we're going to understand what's happening with these angels and with the demons and Satan in Isaiah, I mean in Revelation 12 through 19, you have to fit all these different pieces together within the entire context of Scripture. And that's mostly what we're going to do this morning is look at this big picture because you can't come in and properly understand the details of Satan and the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14 without understanding this broader, this broader context. So we have a demonic army that is bound at the river Euphrates, according to uh, Revelation 9.14, and these four angels who've been prepared for that hour and day and month are released to kill a third of mankind. And then John says in verse 16, Now the number of the army of the horsemen, that is this particular uh, group that's been bound at the river Euphrates, is 200 million. These are 200 million demons that are going to be released to execute judgment on the human race, on the unbelievers, and they will bring about a series of plagues that will kill a third of mankind, according to verse 18. So this is definitely a part of understanding the angelic conflict and how all of this works together. Then when we go over to Revelation chapter 12, just skip over a couple of pages, we will see the introduction of Satan for the first time in the book of Revelation. And it talks about a sign in heaven, the beginning of Revelation 12.1, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now this is a picture of Israel. We know this because that same imagery of the sun, the moon, and the stars is used of the twelve tribes of Israel, and they're bowing down to Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. Revelation 12.2 says, And being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Now, to understand the seven heads and ten horns, we have to go to Daniel. And we're not going to do that. Daniel 5, Daniel uh, 7 uh, tell us that this is related to that uh, ten-nation confederacy of the of the Antichrist. So it's picturing the dragon as the power behind that ten-nation confederacy and the power behind the leader of that ten-nation uh, confederacy. In verse 4, we read, And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The child, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations. That's a reference to Psalm 2. Rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up. That's the ascension to God and his throne. But then look down to verse 7. This is a, a key passage. War broke out in heaven. Now, this war is an intensified war that occurs between the uh, holy angels, the elect angels who have remained obedient to the Lord, and the fallen angels. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, 
nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Key point. They've been in heaven, as I pointed out last time, throughout most, most of human history, there are regular convocations of angels, including both angels and demons, before the throne of God. This is seen in Job 1, Job 2, uh, 1 Kings chapter 22 and following a number of other places. So there is no longer going to be a place found for them in heaven. So at this point in the tribulation, we read in verse 9, the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels are cast out with him. So it is at that point that they come to the earth. And just like that period on human, in human history between the fall in the garden and Genesis 6 and the flood, the angels, the demons will be visible to the human race. Remember at the time of Adam, when Adam sinned, they were cast out of the garden, but the garden was then protected by an army of cherubs. We talked about cherubs last time. We looked at the different kinds of angels. So there's a visible army of cherubs around that geographical location of the Garden of Eden until the flood. So at any time from Adam all the way to Noah, you could go to that location and it, the, the, this army of cherubs were completely visible. Now that seems very strange to us. But then it's also during this time that you have the invasion of the sons of God who attempt to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. In Genesis 6-3, talks about the sons of God, saw the daughters of men, and took them as their wives. And this was an, an attempt to destroy the purity of the human race and prevent the arrival of the seed of the woman in terms of the promised Messiah. Going back to the terminology in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 3, verse 15. So all of this fits together. Now at the end, there's this culmination. This is what I talked about last time, is that you see in the tribulation period everything coming together again so that there is a judgment by the Lord Jesus Christ of sin and evil in every realm of creation. And this culminates in that great battle that occurs at the end of the tribulation known as the battle. Actually, it's a campaign called Armageddon. Now, that covers up through chapter 12. And then in Revelation, we learn that when the demons are cast to earth, they set up their headquarters in Babylon. So in Revelation 18.1, we read, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. This is an elect angel. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons. See, this is what happens during the tribulation period. Now, let me give you a little aside here, because some I, I know the questions are occurring to some of you already. Most of us, if we have had a background in studying the Bible to any degree and have studied uh, dispensations and prophecy, we're probably taught that in Revelation chapter 17, you have the destruction of uh, economic Babylon. Revelation chapter 18, you have the destruction of political Babylon. And Babylon was really just a term used as a symbolic term to represent the revived Roman Empire. 
Now, as we get into this in some detail, I will show you why that's not a correct interpretation. Number one, it's not correct because it's not literal. Now, how many times have we gone through the fact that the key to biblical study is literal interpretation of Scripture? But you see, in the past, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of misconception about certain things related to historic Babylon and its judgment. And I'm going to take the time to go through this because the key passages on that are in Isaiah chapter 13, which is the context for the fall of Satan passage in Isaiah 14, as well as Jeremiah 50 and 51. And what we will discover is that those judgments as announced in the Old Testament never have never taken place historically. And I'll just point out a little bit of that as we go through this this morning. So this angel is going to announce the destruction of Babylon. Now, just another point here is that if the term Babylon here in Revelation 17 and 18 doesn't refer to literal Babylon, then it's the only time a geographical name in the book of Revelation doesn't refer to the to its literal location. It just doesn't fit to all of a sudden jump into Revelation 17 and 18, and just because Babylon appears to be in ruins today, and we don't see how it can be restored to a position of power, that now we're going to try to uh, make it a symbolic term for something else. So Babylon becomes a is, becomes a, a it's going to be a restored city in the tribulation, and it will become a dwelling place of demons. Furthermore, in verse three, it says, "For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication." The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Now, the reason I went on to this verse is because it focuses on the uh, earth as a whole. It focuses on the kings of the earth because it it will then go on in verse 8 to describe the nature of the judgment. Babylon, according to Revelation 18, is going to be destroyed suddenly by fire, and the kings of the earth will mourn for her. Now that fits the prophecies in Jeremiah 15, 51, and in Isaiah 13. Babylon has Babylon gradually died out. It wasn't destroyed suddenly by uh, Cyrus when he conquered it with the Persians in uh, 589, uh, 539 B.C. He took it very calmly, peacefully. You remember the story from Daniel. He blocked off the Euphrates River and, and under the cover of night. They came in on through the riverbed and, and uh, almost without a shot fired, captured the city. And then things just continued as normal. Babylon remained a great city, and it wasn't until after the uh, time of Alexander the Great that it began to lose its prominence but it was still a significant city up through the time of Christ and into the early part of uh, the church age. It just gradually decreased in population, but it always remained inhabited. So the prophecies of the Old Testament predict a sudden and absolute destruction that is final, that, uh, and it's never inhabited again. The historical reality is that there's always been a habitation uh, around Babylon, and we'll get into the details of that probably uh, next time. But the prophecy in Revelation 18, remember we're just getting overview and context this morning. 
Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Notice that twice that phrase is repeated in this context. In one day, death and mourning and famine. She will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, that's the kings of the earth, which is a different reference to the kings of the ten-nation Roman, uh, revived Roman confederacy. The kings of the earth are the non-revived uh, Roman Empire kings who are still, as it were, economically in bed with Babylon. And they are the ones who mourn uh, and weep and lament for her. And then if you skip down to Revelation 18, 17, and 18, we read for, again, in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. This is the mourning of the of the merchants at that time. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? So this this coming judgment, the suddenness of it, the absolute totality of this judgment is again reiterated in verse 19. In one hour she's made desolate. And then finally... Her judgment is announced in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. See, that is a prophecy that has never been fulfilled in relationship to Babylon. And it just doesn't fit the context in Revelation 17 and 18 to try to allegorize, spiritualize, or symbolize this term Babylon and make it refer to a uh, revived Roman Empire. Again, what we see is the events of Revelation are set within a context of a heavenly war between the angels. Revelation 12.7, I already mentioned that war broke out in heaven between Michael and his angels against the dragon and his angels. And in Revelation 12.10, the purpose of that judgment is spelled out. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night is cast down. The point I'm making, as I stated last week, is that the tribulation period is not only a time of judgment upon those in human history who have rejected God, but it is also the culmination of judgment against the demons, against Satan, and against those who have, in, in, spiritual, in spiritual high places, have rebelled against God. So this just puts us in that overall context of the angelic conflict. Now let me remind you again what I mean by the angelic conflict. This is a rebellion that broke out at some point in eternity past. Somebody emailed me a time question this last week and said, well, if this happened before uh, time began or the angels were created by time began, how can you refer to it as a point in time? Well, it wasn't a point in time. They were recreated at some point prior to Genesis 1-1 because we know all the angels uh, sang for joy. All the angels in unison sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. This occurs in Genesis 1.1. Now time, space and time is created at that, at that particular point, and before that there is succession of events. There's before and after. There may not be time as we know it, but there was a, a point 
when angels didn't exist, a point when they did exist. So there's succession of events, so don't get uh, too wrapped up around the axle trying to figure out questions related to space and time. Uh, Einstein's not here, so we'll just avoid that whole that whole discussion. But the course of the angelic conflict continues because this creature rebels against God, leads a third of the angels in rebellion with him, and then he uh, at, at, then he is judged. We know that from uh, Matthew uh, that Matthew uh, that the angels that the, the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. And so on the basis of that verse in the past tense there, we know that the lake of fire has already been created. The the demons aren't there. So the question is, why aren't they there? Well, the scripture doesn't specifically address the question, but it does give us enough clues to be able to come to a solid conclusion as to what must have taken place. We look throughout scripture and we see that the entire framework for understanding God's work with man is always within a legal context. God begins with a covenant. There is a creation covenant or Edenic covenant as some refer to it in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 where God creates man as his representative, as his vicegerent to represent him and rule over the planet. And he is given specific responsibilities and one prohibition. When man violated that prohibition, then the legally established penalty that was set within the context of that covenant is enacted, and he becomes spiritually dead. Then there's a revision of that initial covenant or contract known as the curse, which is described in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 to the end of the chapter, various modifications due to the new fallen condition in human history. So there are new stipulations and new requirements. But God always conforms his practices to stated conditions and contracts to man. He operates within a legal, uh, legal framework. So that once this penalty is enacted, then God has to resolve the problem. And again, he does so with, within a legal context. And he uses legal terminology to describe this. We have penalties, we have justification, righteousness, all these different terms that are used to describe the various facets of our salvation are terms that come out of a courtroom scenario. We also have terms that describe our adversary. Satan, the term Satan, the term uh, devil, are terms that come out of a courtroom uh, situation. Uh, propitiation, in fact, uh, one aspect of salvation is portrayed in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus Christ is our advocate because he is the propitiation not only for our sins but the whole world. He's our advocate. That's another legal term. So we see that all of human history is set within the context of, of legal courtroom terminology, which leads us to conclude that there must have been a legal challenge set forth by Satan against God. And we don't know exactly precisely how that was formulated. We know that it must have challenged God's righteousness and his justice because human history is a demonstration that God's, uh, God is just and righteous in all of his dealings. But we can go further than that. We can also show that, that the very nature of this uh, claim that Satan is setting forth is that he have the the... Uh, right, the time, the opportunity to demonstrate that he can be God. This is what he wants to do. 
is he wants to be God. And so what God is demonstrating in history is that no creature can operate independently of the Creator. And whenever a creature does operate independent from the Creator, it is going to set up a whole series of unintended consequences that produce such horrendous evil and suffering and trauma in history that a punishment such as eternity in the lake of fire is not a harsh punishment. And so God is going to demonstrate through human history that whenever a creature acts independently of God, no matter how innocent that sin may be, no matter how minor that disobedience might appear, such as the disobedience of simply eating a piece of fruit, that the consequences from that are horrendous. It just sets up tidal waves of suffering and horror throughout all of human history. And so what God is demonstrating throughout human history is that his decision to sentence the devil and his angels to the lake of fire is a just and righteous decision. And he will eventually judge all sin and all evil, and that is what the book of Revelation portrays as we come to the close. Now, I pictured this last time with this particular chart showing that God is eternal, but the angels originate at a point in time. Then the universe was created, Genesis 1.1. Then the human race is created to resolve the angelic conflict. They resolve the angelic conflict in the sense of demonstrating God's justice and righteousness. They are an illustration of what happens when creatures sin and act independently of God. But it is also within human history that God is ultimately going to judge and resolve the evil question so that that evil is going to be consigned to the lake of fire. And I talked briefly last time about the whole subject of evil and this problem because this is a question that comes up now and then as you witness to people they will uh, raise the question well how can you believe that God is a just and loving God because if he were if he were uh, all, or if God was an all-powerful and loving God because if God is is truly loving and he lets all this suffering go on then he can't be very powerful or he would have stopped it And if God is all-powerful and he doesn't stop the evil, then he can't be a loving God because if he were loving, he would have stopped the evil. And all this presupposes that that God must conform to the finite understanding of man. So I just summarized this last time, and I'll repeat it very quickly. First of all, of all religions, only Judaism and Christianity have an answer to the origin of evil. Of all religions and philosophies in all of human history, Only biblical revelation, which informs Judaism and Christianity, has a true resolution of the problem of evil. So most of the people you witness to who raise this question don't have an answer. They're just repeating something some professor told them that sounded good, and they're just trying to avoid the implications of God's righteousness in their own life. So the best way to handle it, I find, is to ask them how they resolve the problem because they really don't have an answer at all. Second point I made was that in terms of the problem of evil is framed in terms of how can a loving God allow suffering and evil to occur? 
Only in the Bible do we understand where suffering and evil uh, originates, that it is a result of a creature disobeying God, and this is what brings evil and suffering into human history. Uh, There is the alleged conflict, as I just pointed out, between God's power, his omnipotence, and God's love. And the way they usually set the argument up, they say, first of all, if God is all-powerful, God is really omnipotent, he must not be very loving because of all the suffering that exists. See, their assumption is that if God was really God, if he really loved people, he wouldn't allow them to suffer at all. So he must not be able to stop it. That was the uh, argument of uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People basically said because God just can't control things. He's not all-powerful. second way in which this is addressed is if God really is love, then he must not be able to control the evil and suffering uh, that exists. So that challenges his love. He must not really be a loving God. Third point is that non-Christians don't have an answer to this at all. In all non-Christian religions, evil is either ultimately eternal and suffering is normal, or evil is just denied, like with uh, Christian science or with some forms of Hinduism. It's just a, a matter, it's just an illusion in the mind. Uh, fourth point, God allows evil because he allows free will. To give a creature true freedom, you give him the freedom to obey you, and that implies the freedom to disobey you. And so God wanted creatures to give love to him freely without being coerced, and so that allowed for the potential of evil. Once he decided that, speaking anthropomorphically, once he decided that, he had to provide a solution in the plan so that if evil were introduced into human history, it could be resolved. Fifth point, God originally created angels with volition, knowing that there would be a rebellion and that evil would be introduced into the creation. Therefore, he had to resolve it. He had to resolve it at some point within the plan, but he doesn't have to resolve it immediately. That's another problem that men come up to. Well, why didn't he just stop it immediately? Well, as soon as God stops it, there's no more volition. There's no more free will. So God allows evil to run its course in history in order to demonstrate all of the facets of the horror of arrogance and rebellion and all of the facets to his grace and to his justice. So it's in this context, the context of the ultimate resolution of evil and sin and evil in Revelation, that we must understand the angelic conflict which takes us back to its beginning. And that's why we have to look at these passages in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. So let's just begin with an introduction. The introduction to this problem of identifying the figures, the individuals mentioned in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. Okay, I'm going to give you nine reasons why these passages cannot and do not refer to human beings. This is just sort of an introductory overview. We'll get into some of the details more uh, next time. First of all, any methodology, 
Well, let, let me back up before I give you the first first principle. There are basically three three interpretations of these passages. The first is the view that I believe is the correct interpretation. That is that it refers to Satan in some sense. I'm going to lump several d- different ones together because ultimately they all refer to Satan. There's some that think that this refers to the Antichrist, thus it's speaking the power behind the throne. There are others who think it just refers specifically to Satan, but ultimately what we're saying is that in some way, either typologically or directly, these passages refer to Satan. The second view is a historical view, trying to identify these rulers as historical individuals. For example, in Isaiah 14, they try to identify the ruler as either Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar. There are problems with both of those views, but there are many people who take that sort of historical approach that it's actually referring to either either Sennacherib and the Assyrian invasion or it's talking about um, Nebuchadnezzar, which occurred some 200 years later. The third view came into came into popularity in the late 19th century out of a, a, a soil, a background of 19th century religious liberalism. 19th century religious liberal, liberalism started with the assumption that God has not spoken to man at all. The Bible is just a record of people's religious experiences. And so you can't rely on it uh, for its infallibility or inerrancy, there was a complete rejection of the infallibility of Scripture and the assumption that the Bible reflects an evolution of religious thought uh, just as human history is based on evolution of man. So it's very influenced by Darwinism in the area of, uh, in the area of religion. So this idea of mythology, that, that a lot of these stories in the Old Testament are really legends, uh, mythology, some of which has been absorbed from other cultures and then been modified uh, by the Jews, is is part of that whole 19th century religious liberal viewpoint. Now, there are there are quote evangelicals today, evangelical commentary series that uh, and comment uh, and theologians who try to argue for this. Uh, mythological view, and you may run across that if you look at certain study Bibles and you look at the notes and suddenly you realize that that's not what you believe. I, I just try to give you this background so you can look at these things a little more intelligently. Okay, back to my nine reasons. First reason, any methodology, any approach to Scripture or to interpretation that identifies the figure in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 as some Canaanite or Phoenician myth, or another way they try to handle it is an idealized but non-historical man, is incompatible at its very core with a view of divine inspiration and inerrancy. If you think that the basis here is really just some Canaanite myth, some Phoenician myth that was borrowed by the Jews and then just sort of revamped uh, by the writer of Isaiah so that it fits his uh, particular argument, then it is completely inconsistent with any view, any conservative view of divine inspiration, inerrancy, or the infallibility of Scripture, and doesn't fit with a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. Furthermore, just as an added note, 
No pagan myth has ever been discovered which could be such a source. This is just somebody, some scholar's imagination because of his presuppositions uh, related to the history of religion. Second point. What is said in both of these passages goes far beyond the abilities of any human figure. There is no historical figure that fits the descriptions in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28. Attempts have been made to identify this king in Isaiah 14 with Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, with Sennacherib, with Sargon. They pick various Assyrian kings. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, or just a group of Babylonian kings. But the reality is no individual human leader fits the description in Isaiah chapter uh, 14. Third point, Isaiah states, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven. That's a starting point. No Babylonian or Assyrian ruler existed, lived, or fell from heaven. Now, there are those who attempt to say that this is simply hyperbole or metaphor, but you cannot document that from either comparing it with other scripture or with comparisons of other Babylonian judgment passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Remember, the standard is the scripture, not what you find in archaeological texts outside of the scripture. So the Bible doesn't use this terminology loosely. So no human, human leader could have fallen from heaven. Fourth, Ezekiel addresses his lament to two individuals. If you read the whole chapter of Ezekiel 28, he begins talking with the prince of Tyre. It's a lament against the prince of Tyre. And then starting in Ezekiel 28.14, he shifts to the king of Tyre. What this shows is the prince of Tyre is the literal human ruler who is addressed in the first 13 verses. And then beginning in verse 14, uh, Ezekiel shifts to a description of the power behind the throne, to the real energizer behind the prince of Tyre who was uh, Satan. The god of Tyre at that time was Malkart. Malkart was viewed as the king of the city, And this could perhaps be equivalent to what is discussed in verses 11 to 19 as the king. But Malkart was just a manifestation of Satan, just another demonic idol. So Ezekiel addresses the human king in the first part of the chapter and then shifts to the real power behind the throne in the second half of the chapter. Fifth observation is that in the New Testament, Paul identifies Satan's sin as pride or arrogance in 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. Now, how did Paul know that Satan's original sin was pride or arrogance if there's no reference to it in the Old Testament? If there's no revelation, if if Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do not describe the original sin of Satan, then we have nothing in Scripture related to the original sin of Satan. We don't know anything about it. The first thing we know is Genesis chapter 3, and there's the devil uh, impersonating or using a snake to, uh, to tempt the woman, and we don't know where he came from. In other words, if you don't have a scripture 
a revelation related to the origin of sin and evil in the universe, then why don't we believe in dualism? The eternal existence of both good and evil. You have, an, in my opinion, if you reject a satanic reference to both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you don't have any knowledge of how sin entered the universe. But Paul clearly does in 1 Timothy, so there must be revelation related to that. Sixth, the descriptions that you find in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, though they are very grand, cannot apply to a human king, and there's not contextual evidence that these are hyperbole or metaphor. They're viewed historically or prophetically. That's part of history. It's just history before it happens. But there's no indication in the text that the writer is simply talking in exaggeration. And that's your standard approach that you find from people. Well, this was just hyperbole. It's just, uh, he's just talking in very grand figures of speech, but you can't support that from the context. In Scripture, there's always contextual clues that the writer is using figures of speech. You can't just read it into the text because a literal interpretation just doesn't quite make sense to you. Seventh point. No human king could be said to be, quote, blameless in your ways from the day you were created, which is what is said of the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, 15. That is, the only human of whom that could be said would be Adam. But no human king would be blameless in your ways. Eight, in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre is referred to as the anointed cherub who covers. And it is said in this passage that he was created by God. And this special word that's used for creation here is bara in the Hebrew, which always speaks of God's direct creative acts, not indirect acts. For example, if I were to say in Hebrew that God created you, I would use asa or yatser because that indicates that some intermediate means was used. I couldn't use the verb bara because that would indicate a direct, immediate creation of God. And our bodies are produced through procreation, intermediate means. So when uh, Isaiah uses the, I mean, Ezekiel uses the verb bara, it indicates that this cherub is created as a direct, immediate creation from God. And then finally, in Ezekiel 28, there is the statement that the king in Ezekiel was in the garden of God. And that can't be reconciled with any temporal historical figure. doesn't fit Sargon or Sennacherib or any known king of Tyre or Nebuchadnezzar or anybody else. So just in terms of introduction, those seven points point out why we can't go with some sort of mythological or historical historical figure. Now that sets us up for getting into Isaiah next time. So we next time we'll come back, we'll look at the, what is taking place historically at the time of the Isaiah uh, prophecy against Babylon. Babylon wasn't even a major power in the uh, 8th century B.C. when Isaiah wrote this. So it couldn't refer, to, it wasn't an indication of what was happening right then. The major power block at that time was Assyria, 
the Assyrians at that time, Isaiah began his ministry about 740 B.C., and he continued beyond 681. We don't know exactly when he died, but it was during this time in 722 that the Assyrians defeated Syria and then conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So the Assyrians were the major power force at that particular time. And yet this oracle, this this lament, this taught even, and Isaiah 14 is against the king of Babylon. So we have to look at a number of historical uh, details in order to properly understand the passage. And, of course, that begins with understanding the prophecy in Isaiah 13. And that's where the real challenge comes for many people because we think, oh, that already happened. So next time we're going to look at the evidence why that has never been fulfilled, why Babylon has never been judged the way it was announced that they would be judged in Isaiah 13 or in Jeremiah 15, 51, and that that opens the door to a future uh, restoration of Babylon as a political and economic center of power for the Antichrist that will be finally judged at the end of the tribulation. So you see, you have to pull all kinds of threads together in order to uh, come to a clear understanding of what this passage is talking about, and it is quite fascinating. Well, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are God who is just and righteous, and in your uh, justice and righteousness you provided a perfect plan of salvation so that your righteousness and justice would be satisfied, propitiated, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was without sin, died on the cross as our substitute, and because he was qualified and without sin, he could take upon himself our sin and pay the penalty for us, and so that he could pay that penalty in full. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain, understanding that there's nothing that you can do to gain your salvation, nothing you can do to, to gain God's approval. All that was done by Jesus Christ on the cross. So the only thing that is left for you is to simply accept or trust or believe that Jesus died for you. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation, you are Uh, You will receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You'll be declared justified. You will be regenerated, and you can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray for the rest of us that as we study these things, we will realize that our lives count within a broader context, and that's the context of this angelic rebellion, and that our lives serve as a testimony to your grace, to your righteousness, and to your justice. And as we live our lives in dependence upon you, you are glorified, and it is just another piece of evidence against the claims of Satan. Father, we pray that we might be stimulated to obedience to your word and to a study of your word by the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.